KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. Bad news on San Diego's COVID-19 numbers, which could mean the imposition of tighter restrictions on businesses here. I'm Mark Sauer, in for Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A misinformation campaign surrounds a newly updated state law with the controversy affecting the San Diego mayor's race. Plus, why there are so few black admirals and what the Navy is doing about it. And our summer music series concludes with the hopeful lyrics of Indian K. That's ahead on Midday Edition. But first, this news. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Our top story today, a classic good news, bad news situation with the latest COVID-19 numbers and their impact on everyday life. Coronavirus cases are down significantly in California, but they are up in San Diego County, largely due to a spike among students back on campus at San Diego State. And Governor Gavin Newsom is not keen on the idea of discounting the number of student infections. Here to discuss what it all means is reporter Paul Sisson of the San Diego Union-Tribune. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Now let's start with these uh, COVID-19 numbers in San Diego. Things were bright enough a couple weeks ago for state restrictions on certain indoor businesses to be eased. Explain what's happened since that jeopardizes that tier status. Right. Uh, This is the new uh, tier system the governor came out with uh, a few weeks ago. And every Tuesday now, we get a new report from the California Department of Public Health that notifies each county which tier they are in. Uh, This Tuesday's report showed San Diego dropping a tier uh, from red to purple, which would mean that uh, they would see the the rights to reopen that are currently enjoyed by by many businesses, uh, business types in San Diego County reduced if we are in that category uh, for another second straight week next Tuesday. Uh, These tiers are governed by uh, your number of cases per 100,000 residents and also the percentage of of COVID tests that are coming back positive. Now, county officials argue that cases among SDSU students should be isolated and that they were about to send a letter uh, to the state to that effect. What's the reasoning among county supervisors? Uh, the county, uh, you know, relying on their epidemiology department yeah, is indicating that they feel like these SDSU students largely 
associate with other students and the outbreaks and cases that they have confirmed so far have largely been really focused in on people who are either living on campus or adjacent to campus within walking distance and that they haven't really had a lot of spillover uh, in terms of transmission of the virus to people who aren't students. So they're saying, you know, this is relatively contained in a bubble uh, with students generally talking to students. We haven't, for example, uh, seen businesses uh, and, and other uh, organizations used by students in the college area actually see outbreaks. The outbreaks we have seen have been generally associated with parties or, or places where many students live together. So they were hoping for a waiver, but Governor Gavin Newsom shot that argument down yesterday. What did he say? Right. He uh, he came out in his uh, press conference yesterday at noon and, and during the question and answer period of it uh, was asked very pointedly uh, whether or not he supported such a carve out where the, the next round of calculations for the tiers would basically just pull out or subtract out the SDSU cases. And he said, no, there's really no way to separate uh, a university from its community. Uh, the students live in the, in the community, obviously, many of them. Uh, and, and so, no, I don't support that. He was uh, rather firm and, and, and direct uh, in answering that question. So where does that leave the county? If San Diego County defies the state guidelines, there's got to be consequences. Right. Uh, that was the other thing uh, that came out in yesterday's uh, state press conference. Uh, Dr. Mark Daly, the secretary of the Health and Human Services Agency, made it very clear that, uh, that they expect uh, these uh, guidelines to be followed and, and counties to drop a tier if their numbers are indeed uh bad two weeks in a row. So it leaves the county, you know, on the side, still trying to make some arguments uh, with the state to try to get them to change their minds. Uh, they have this uh, this meeting with, uh, with uh, one of their uh, executives, uh, with, with some other uh, state level um, executives later this week that might, I guess, uh, still change their mind based on a lot of the data that they have and the arguments that they're making. Uh, and then they're having a closed session meeting uh, tonight at five o'clock to discuss with their lawyers what their other options are. Um, there, there was some talk uh, at the board meeting on Tuesday that, that some supervisors are very um, emphatic that they are not dropping that back down to purple and they are not going to go along with the notion of restricting businesses again uh, in a situation where it's pretty clear that the additional cases from SDSU, which the state allowed to reopen, are, are what is pushing us from the red tier down to the purple tier. So will they sue them? Will they just refuse to enforce uh, these uh, reductions in, in openings? Uh, it's kind of unclear at the moment. Yeah, so a lot of follow-up on, on this story to be sure. Now, it's easy to imagine an uproar here among business owners and customers if restaurants, hair salons, gyms, etc., have to close down again, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you listen to the uh, county meeting uh, on Tuesday, there were over 60 uh, folks who called in, many of them business owners uh, who, who are just, you know, one after another, they just call this a government overreach and, and, and they say they're fed up and are just not going to tolerate this anymore. So, so the notion that you could just get businesses that are now allowed to have some level of indoor operation to, to move back outdoors again is a really untested idea and one that I'm just not quite sure, short of sending law enforcement out and, and uh, you know, forcibly closing these businesses. I, I don't know that anybody's going to go along with this voluntarily at this point. Right. Let's uh, turn back to SDSU for a moment. More testing plan there means probably more cases, but the numbers 
so far are looking a little better. Are students finally getting the message on campus? I think so. I mean, it seems like the, the university has really been using all of its channels to try to pound this message home uh, to these students in terms of, you know, gosh, guys, you really need to take this seriously. You really need to wear your mask. You really need to stay in your dorms. Um, you know, so it seems like they, they have seen uh, some reduction in the case rate. That's what Dr. Eric McDonald, the county's epidemiology director, said yesterday was when he was looking on a week by week basis, there have been fewer cases detected uh, this week than there were last. So there, there are some signs that it's dropping, but not, not yet gone. And finally, the good news here, what do California statewide numbers show regarding COVID-19 and but what the, what's the caution that uh, we should be aware of there? Right. Uh, you know, at the moment, overall, the state numbers are, are dropping. And really, the, the, the most encouraging thing that we've seen is uh, overall hospitalizations dropping. It seems like hospitals are learning better how to treat uh, folks who have a severe version of this disease uh, where it attacks their cardiovascular system and their lungs. Uh, you know, they're treating earlier with steroids and they're doing other things to ramp down that immune response. And that's to be trickling out to the uh, overall hospitalization rate. Uh, you know, the, the big caveat there is we, you know, we just finished a big uh, Labor Day weekend and the incubation period of this disease uh, can be as long as two weeks. Uh, and uh, Supervisor Fletcher has warned in a couple meetings now uh, that, you know, guys don't just get too focused on what's going on at SDSU. Uh, you know, even if we exempt the SDSU numbers, we may still be likely to see a big surge based on whatever people got up to uh, over Labor Day weekend. Right. And the annual flu season uh, is looming, too, as well. I've been speaking right. with reporter Paul Sisson of the San Diego Union-Tribune. Thanks, Paul. Thank you. Governor Gavin Newsom signed SB 145 into law without comment last week, but it's generated plenty of comment in San Diego. It started with a tweet that went viral by Mayor Kevin Faulkner, Quote, as a parent, I'm appalled that last night our governor signed a law maintaining a 24-year-old can have sex with a 14-year-old and it not be considered predatory. But that's not the law's intent. The controversy has spilled into the race for mayor between Barbara Bree and Todd Gloria. And among criticisms of Faulkner is that he is echoing the conspiracy theory QAnon, which also spreads lies about baby killing and cannibalism by prominent figures. Joining me to discuss all this is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Welcome back to Midday Edition, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Let's start with SB 145. What does the law say? So, Mark, current law treats adults convicted of statutory rape of a victim between 14 and 17 differently depending on the sexual act that takes place and essentially the sexual orientation of the two parties involved. When a victim is between 14 and 17 and the perpetrator is within 10 years of the victim's age, a judge can decide whether to require that perpetrator to register as a sex offender. In cases of, and uh, a warning to listeners, we're going to be talking about some sexual acts here, so it, it's somewhat uncomfortable, but in cases of vaginal penetration, uh, a judge can decide whether or not to place the perpetrator on the sex offender registry. In cases of other sex acts, uh, anal, oral, or digital penetration, which are the main types of sex acts involved that, that same-sex couples uh, do, a judge has no discretion. So whereas an 18-year-old could have sex with his 17-year-old girlfriend and 
potentially not be placed on the sex offender registry, an 18-year-old having sex with his 17-year-old boyfriend would be placed on the registry no matter what. Um, what this law changes is it treats LGBT convicts of statutory rape the same as heterosexual convicts. It has been endorsed by Equality California, the LGBT Civil Rights Group, um, the California District Attorneys Association, the California Police Chiefs Association. It has wide street, uh, widespread mainstream support from these organizations, and many of them not known for being soft on child sexual abuse. Now, what has the bill's author, State Senator Scott Weiner, said in response to the mayor's tweet and similar criticism? Well, he's always said that this bill was about equal treatment under the law. Uh, judges have been allowed this discretion in cases of uh, statutory rape between a man and a woman since 1944. So for the past 76 years, he says, judges have been deciding whether those uh, convicted of statutory rape in those cases should be on the sex offender registry or not. And no one was crying out for reform. And, and in fact, uh, critics of this bill, at least as far as I've heard, have not been able to point to a case where um, a, a judge made the wrong decision and somebody should have been placed on the registry when they were not. Um, and he says then the only problem was when LGBT Californians asked for equal treatment under the law. Um, that's when people have said, uh, no, this bill is, you know, there are many, many different lies and disinformation spread about it saying that it legalizes pedophilia or that it um, legalizes any sexual acts when in fact it doesn't. It doesn't change the criminality of these acts. It only changes whether a judge has discretion to place uh, the offender on the sex offender registry. Well, KUSI has been criticized for inflaming the issue and giving opponents a platform on its air. Here's Kevin Faulkner on KUSI this week. Terrible bill. The governor should not have signed it. And I think you're seeing that opposition. And this is bipartisan. This is Republicans who voted against it, Democrats who voted against it. The absolute terrible thing to do. They should have repealed the existing law, Laura, not make it worse. And to say under any circumstances that you could have a 24-year-old adult with a 14-year-old and call that consensual, that's just crazy. That defies logic. And let's hear how Councilwoman Barbara Bree, who again is running for mayor, has run with the mayor's remarks in her campaign against former Councilman Todd Gloria. This is another area in which Mr. Gloria and I disagree. Um, I agree with Assemblymember Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher and with Mayor Faulkner, and I'm opposed to SB 145. Listen, I'm a mom, and there's no case in which there is consensual sex between a 14-year-old and a 24-year-old, whether it's a girl, a boy, gay sex, straight sex. And Andrew, of course, they're taking the extreme 10-year gap there in the comments. What's been the response to these comments and KOSI's role in this controversy? So KUSI's coverage of this bill has used the word pedophilia, uh, which should really be banished from this discussion altogether. Pedophilia is a psychiatric disorder, um, which you cannot criminalize. You can criminalize sexual acts. So that is really a red herring to begin with. Um, the other problem with Mayor Faulkner's and Councilmember Bree's comments there is they use the word consensual. And this law does not change uh, whether or not any sex act is considered consensual. It, it simply allows, again, it allows judges discretion in cases of um, same-sex sexual activity. Um, it is still considered statutory rape. It does not change uh, the criminality involved, and it is still considered not consensual. 
so, you know, it's difficult to have a rational discussion around this bill when there is so much disinformation and that disinformation is being amplified by elected officials and, and people running for office. Um, I do also want to note that Quality California, which was a sponsor of this bill, put out a statement yesterday evening. And um, they said in part, the rise of dangerous conspiracy theories and homophobic tropes about gay men is not a partisan or political issue. It is an issue of public safety. The disinformation campaign about this legislation was started on social media websites by QAnon, a group that the FBI has labeled conspiracy theory driven domestic extremists. So QAnon becomes a part of this conspiracy theory and it's part of their talking points now. Yes, at some point during the debate over this bill, um, this community of, of trolls and conspiracy theorists started spreading the lie that California was legalizing pedophilia. Scott Weiner, the senator, uh, the author uh, of the bill, received some really vile homophobic and anti-Semitic attacks, and that was uh, what Equality California was alluding to. Um, as they also mentioned the statement, QAnon has been um, labeled a potential domestic terrorist threat by the FBI, and um, their lies and disinformation have trickled up into the mainstream um, to some extent. And I will acknowledge that uh, neither Faulkner nor Bree said anything about legalizing pedophilia. Um, however, their statements did uh, spread some misinformation about this bill through um, suggestion and innuendo, and I think it's rather convenient that they can claim distance from QAnon, um, but still sound like, um, you know, giving what sound like legitimate reasons for opposing this law when in fact, um, the language that they're using is simply not based in fact. Now, Senator Weiner notes the bill is supported by organizations including the California District Attorneys Association, the California Police Chiefs Association, and Children Now. What about this controversy in the mayor's race? What's Todd Gloria got to say now? Well, he's defended his support for the bill. He said he wouldn't have supported it if it weren't for uh, the endorsement of the district attorneys and the police chiefs in California. Um, he has clarified uh, a lot of the disinformation about the bill, that it doesn't change the criminality, um, that it is, uh, you know, the intent of the bill is about just simply treating LGBT Californians equally under the law. And uh, frankly, Mark, I think that, uh, you know, every time there's a public survey about how San Diegans, uh, what issues San Diegans are concerned about, the top of the list is always homelessness, housing affordability, um, more recently, the economy and the coronavirus. So if the mayoral candidates are listening to voters, um, then I think that those are the issues that they'll be focusing on. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you, Mark. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. I'm Mark Sauer. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition.
A Pentagon task force is looking at why the Navy doesn't have more African Americans in top jobs. Only a handful of Navy admirals are black, and none of them is at the two highest ranks. KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh reports for the American Homefront Project. The problem starts at the top. Out of 268 admirals in the U.S. Navy, only 10 are African American. Most of them are rear admirals like Alvin Halsey, who is running the Navy task force. That's pretty small. Uh, Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes. Right now, there are no African American admirals at the two highest ranks. Building an admiral is a 20 to 30 year commitment, Halsey says. It's not just about test scores and performance reviews. Someone has to be willing to guide that young officer. As a black officer in Navy, I'll tell you that I've mentored more people to, that don't look like me, that look like me, sure mathematics, right? Uh, but I will tell you also because there's very few guys who've come before me in, in, in small numbers, uh, someone who don't look like me had to reach out and engage and make a difference in my career. African-Americans are 13% of the population, but only 9% of naval officers. So the pipeline starts off small. Then, somewhere along the way, many people just become exhausted, says Keith Green, a lieutenant commander who retired in the 1990s. He recently wrote the book Black Officer, White Navy. It is not simply just unconscious bias. There are active behaviors that are happening to people because they don't like working for a black person or a minority, and they don't like having, you know, one be their their, uh, supervisor. Not everyone an African-American officer encounters is a problem, Green says, but the extra effort to work around those who are takes its toll on their career. Not only do you have to do all the other stressful things that any military person has to do, you have to play that double game of trying to figure out why you're being treated differently or what's happening to you, why is something happening to you that isn't happening to other people. Retired Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris heads the National Naval Officers Association, which has worked for 50 years to promote diversity in the sea services. He says it takes hundreds of ensigns to eventually make one admiral, or what the Navy calls flag officers. You've got to bring more people in, in the beginning, so that the quality cut that you're going to have especially when you get to senior officer and get to flag officer, you have enough people in the pot. He calls it Death Valley, that point where junior officers opt to end their careers. Graduating from the Naval Academy is the most well-worn path to admiral, but less than 6% of the current class at the Naval Academy is African American. The Academy is not the only path. Admiral Harris was rejected when he applied at the beginning of his career. Harris says one solution is mentoring officers who come through less traditional paths. When you only have one out of 20 uh, diverse candidates going up for a flag officer in a certain community, and they decide, hey, you know what? I just got this high-paying job at IBM. Guess what? Now you're down to zero, and you got to look through that pipeline, and that pipeline is anemic. The Navy is more diverse at lower ranks. 20% of enlisted sailors are African-American. Force Master Chief Huben Phillips is part of the One Navy Task Force, which is looking at how to end discrimination in the ranks. Uh, Throughout my 31 years, uh, where I've seen uh, racism or discrimination personally against me, uh, I knew what the policy was, right? I knew that it was wrong. But when you're in a minority, you just kind of put your head down, right? You kind of figure out, you think about self-preservation, you think about your family, you think about the bigger picture. At the moment, the Navy is encouraging enlisted and officers alike to speak up. One Navy task force is scheduled to issue its report in December.
Steve Walsh, KPBS News. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. As November 3rd nears, many are casting their votes by mail. Among them are many U.S. immigrants living in Mexico. And their expectations for this year's election are high as either the re-election or the exit of President Donald Trump brings a new wave of voters. From KJZZ's Mexico City Bureau, Rodrigo Cervantes brings us this Fronteras report. In Mexico, some might share the benevolent view that President Andres Manuel López Obrador has of President Trump after making trade, security, oil, and immigration agreements throughout his term and visiting him in Washington, D.C. In what essentially is Mexico's State of the Union speech, López Obrador applauded Trump and said he has treated Mexico respectfully and, most importantly, has praised Mexicans living and working in the U.S. But others remember Trump from his rhetoric against Mexico, threatening to close trade, building a border wall, and attacking Mexican immigrants, like in one of his most noticed 2016 campaign speeches. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And among those paying close attention in Mexico to the re-election or rejection of Trump this year are more than a million people officially identified as American immigrants. One of them is Chris Laundrie, professor of political science living in Mexico City. He finds it ironic that Mexico tends to be portrayed as dangerous in the U.S., while tons of American expats like him live, work, and thrive in Mexico. Laundrie is an Arizona voter and believes in the importance of his ballot. Arizona is a shifting state with regard to politics, and so I like the fact that I maintain my registration in Arizona. The researcher arrived in Mexico in 2017. He's now in quarantine, expecting a child with his Mexican wife. According to data from the U.S. Embassy, 10% of Americans have family ties with Mexico. One of the issues the professor has to address with Mexicans is how could someone receive more votes and still lose the election in the U.S., unlike the Mexican election system. And so I have to figure out a way to explain the sort of archaic system of the Electoral College Laundrie says the relationship between López Obrador and Trump might seem a paradox, but reflects the need to continue bilateral economic and political relations. Trade between both nations represents almost $2 billion on a daily basis, according to U.S. data. But Laundrie says Trump tends to be perceived as a racist, and his defeat could bring better agreements. Part of this election will be symbolic, and the symbolic element might be the most important part, uh, at least as people would perceive it here. Grisha Rather is president of Democrats Abroad in Mexico City, and he says he's noticed more U.S. immigrants interested in voting this year. We see a lot of people registering now to help out with the Democrats Abroad organization in Mexico, and we attribute and thank Mr. Trump for all of this. And of course, now the goal is to get him out of office. The Democrats in Mexico help U.S. immigrants vote and promote a nonpartisan website where voters can register before ballots arrive by mid-September. It's one of the most screwed up processes in terms of remote voting in the world, and people need help. Rather says the election itself will not be influenced by the relationship between the Mexican and U.S. presidents. But Mexico won't be a priority for the winning candidate because of many other problems, mainly domestic, that need to be solved. We need to make sure that we are not spending money on stupid walls or that we're separating families. These are the things that the U.S. will worry about when it comes to a certain extent a part of the population in Mexico. Larry Rubin represents Republicans in Mexico. He says his party is also trying to attract the expat vote, particularly as they've seen a growing interest. 
I've seen a lot more uh, Republicans wanting to uh, send out their vote more than the previous elections. And I think it's a testament to President Trump's stellar record in achieving a number of accomplishments. Rubin says the big difference between this election and the past one is that people already know how President Trump operates. I am sure that he is not a racist at all. I've had the opportunity to work closely with him and with the party, so I know the real President Trump. The Obama administration was perceived as distant towards Mexico. Deportations of Mexican nationals reached one of its highest peaks in history, and cross-border crime investigations like Operation Fast and Furious became a scandal. Uh, at the end of the day, what I see of Joe Biden is he was a number two for eight years, and the relationship with Mexico could have not been colder. American voters in Mexico are required to deliver or mail their ballots to the U.S. Embassy or consulates, or even directly to the United States. I'm Rodrigo Cervantes in Mexico City. KPBS On Demand is supported by Bill Howe Plumbing, Heating and Air, Restoration and Flood Services. Family owned and operated for three generations, Bill Howe has been serving the plumbing, heating and air and water damage needs of the San Diego area since 1980 with their fleet of trained professionals. Bill Howe has the ability to service all major and minor plumbing and HVAC emergency needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Bill Howe is committed to providing excellent service to their customers with transparent quotes and attention to detail on every job. Whether you're in need of an HVAC installation, plumbing, or water damage restoration in San Diego, they offer the convenience of scheduling an appointment over the phone, online, or through live chat on their website. Call 1-800-BILL-HOWE or visit billhowe.com. Because we know how. I'm Mark Sauer, in for Maureen Cavanaugh. You're listening to Midday Edition on KPBS. COVID-19 forced the San Diego Latino Film Festival to cancel its annual event back in March. Today, it kicks off a virtual edition of the festival. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the festival's founder and executive director, Ethan Van Tilo, about the challenges of moving everything online. Ethan... Back in March, I was interviewing you about the start of your festival, and on the day you were supposed to launch the San Diego Latino Film Festival, California gave out the orders that all public gatherings of that size had to cease. So how has this journey been to restaging the festival? It's been incredible. Uh, flexibility is definitely the key. Flexibility, innovation. Uh, honestly, when we spoke back in March, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, by summer we would have a good in-person events would have started by then, a good rhythm would have happened, we would have been uh, having our educational programs, and we were even talking about having an in-person film festival. Um, but, you know, with this pandemic, as we're all living through it every day, it's something's different, right? Every, a new change, a new announcement. And so we decided, yeah, it's best to have a virtual edition of our 2020, 27th San Diego Latino Film Festival. So, yeah, September 17th to 27th, there will be a virtual Latino Film Festival, the first one of our kind. That said, we've been doing virtual screenings and film screenings since March uh, with our digital gym, cinema. So we're, we've gotten used to it. Uh, and, you know, we've gotten used to screening screening movies online. And then also we've got used to uh, the idea of this uh, post-screening Q&As, getting filmmakers engaged and audience members uh, via social media sites like YouTube or Facebook. And that's actually been one of the uh, high points of these past few months is engaging people virtually. 
in having to delay the festival, how has that impacted your programming in terms of the kinds of films you can show? So we thought it was just going to be easy, right? Just, oh, we'll replicate exactly what we did in person in March and September. But no, the reality is that as soon as you start screening things uh, online, there's uh, issues like geo-blocking. You can only screen certain films in certain cities or states or countries. So we can't, can't screen certain uh, films. Also, these films have distributors, obviously, and those distributors needed to move forward. And so the films are now maybe on Netflix or other platforms. And so, yeah, we've lost a good 30, 40 films, uh, which is amazing, uh, mostly features, of course. That said, the curatorial team, Moises and Juan, have done an amazing job in pivoting and screening what we can. Uh, and then most importantly, to celebrate those films that we are screening, because those are the films that need distribution, right? Those are the films that we should, as local San Diegans, be supporting and try to get these more Latino voices uh, in front of the screens and more directors behind the, the camera. So it's important that we support these independent, maybe smaller films that we're screening at this upcoming festival. And what is the online experience going to be for people in terms of do all the films become available at one time and then you get to choose when you watch them or do they become available at specific times during the scheduled festival? Yeah, so we wanted to recreate the festival environment uh, with the virtual version of the San Diego Latino Film Festival. So it's like anything else. You The show time is 7 o'clock, for example, or a certain show time. You have access to it about an hour before, but then you also have 24 hours to see it. And so, yes, every day, different show times, different film screenings. So you watch the movie. And then also um, the team has put together a wonderful collection of uh, post Q&As. So we'll have live streams, uh, questions and answer sessions with the filmmakers and actors on most of the films. So check that out too. So watch the film at the showtime and then participate in a Q&A afterwards, just like you would do at an in-person event. We brought up Digital Gym and there's something that we haven't yet had to talk about, which is the fact that your physical space on El Cajon Boulevard was forced to close. And for full disclosure, I've been screening films at Digital Gym for the past six years as part of Film Geek San Diego. So I was very sad to see the space close because it was a really lovely, cozy venue for bringing people together to watch films. Yeah, we had a wonderful 10 years at the uh, Digital Gym Cinema space in North Park. I mean, converted an old dilapidated building into this thriving movie theater community technology center that was uh, reaching over 15,000 people a year. It was incredibly um, what we had done <laughs> these past few years. So yeah, our 10 year lease was up um, anyways. And so it was, it was time for change and we have a great opportunities, which unfortunately we can't announce uh, yet, but we will be moving downtown San Diego and we have a wonderful partner that will be making the official announcement soon and where we're heading. So we're heading to a state of the art facility where we'll have classrooms, we'll have a movie theater. Um, so yeah, sad to see the North Park location leave, but again, the lease was up and it was about change uh, is needed anyway ways and then of course we're during this pandemic we can't screen movies uh, anyways or we can't have in-class uh, programs anyway so it kind of made sense oh we'll just wait until 2021 when the new space is open uh, and uh, you know have a big celebration when it happens and when we had spoken back in March the festival because it had to cancel on the day it was supposed to start you were facing some serious financial issues uh, how has that been recovering from that the festival was a shock, right? So we had put all this money, you know, into putting this festival and then boom, it just ended. And, you know, most uh, 
people don't understand the importance of ticket sales or earned income. And so, yeah, when you can't bring in your earned income with the ticket sales, that's a huge shock uh, for an organization such as ourselves. Thankfully, though, we have some vendors that have allowed us to give us credit. So we can use that credit for future film festivals. So there's some vendors that are very supportive. Uh, and then also, thankfully, that there were some uh, loan programs. The PPP loan ha helped us out. And then also uh, small grants. The Commission for Arts and Culture had a small grant supporting arts organizations. Uh, the California Humanities Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences had a, a surprise grant that helped us out uh, the past few months. So we've been able to get a kind of an infusion of dollars to help us uh, during this time, uh, you know, when we can't do in-person events and we are, can't sell tickets, which is such an important part of our business model over the past 27 years. And do you have any uh, final words about the festival coming up? Well, again, I just want to encourage everyone to come together during this uh, 11 days, um, celebrate Latino culture, uh, celebrate Latino film. Let's get together and talk about these movies, talk about the issues in the movies, celebrate and support these filmmakers. Because remember, uh, it's important to support independent artists and filmmakers during this time of crisis. They're the ones that we need to have keep on creating movies. And so by buying a ticket, you're supporting distributors and supporting artists themselves. And then maybe just participating on, on, the, on the live Q and A's, you know, just encourages them to continue as artists during this difficult time. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about the San Diego Latino Film Festival, which is returning. Yay. Thank you very much. We'll see you at the festival. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Ethan Van Tilo. The San Diego Latin Film Festival relaunches today online and runs through September 27th. The hip-hop artist Indian K is a member of the Rincon Luceno tribe of Mission Indians. He spent the early part of his childhood in San Diego on his tribe's reservation in Rincon. His life has taken him on a long road through foster care and prison and back into the community as a respected musician. Through it all, Indian K's lyrics remain positive and full of hope. As part of the last episode of our summer music series, Indian K spoke with Allison St. John. Here's his song, Go Win. This is for my kids, show me the love I miss. This is for the pain, make you appreciate life in the little things. This is for holding on to what grandpa instilled in us. This for creator, not letting the streets kill me. This for those fighting demons. This for hope to the hopeless lost souls who found a purpose. This for the dream, search to reality. This for the mind that's from the heart. This for those seen light in the dark. This death before this honor. This for the world. We, 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 we gon' be alright. We gon' keep pushing, keep moving, keep on grinding. We, 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 we gon' be alright. Love and life, take the good with the bad. Indian K, welcome to Midday Edition. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. You're from the, the Rincon Band of Luceno Mission Indians, and you lived on the reservation till you were 11. How was it to, to, to go back and forth between reservation life and, and life on the outside, as it were? It was just different. Every time I would leave there and go to the city, I felt like out of place, but I'm kind of used to it. It was more like a, a homely, a homely feeling 
you know, being on the res and then in the city, it's like real fast paced. Everything's fast paced. Even back then on the res, you can feel it fall back. You can feel time not stop, but it, you feel it like slow down. That was the yeah. difference right there for me. Yeah. I'm beginning to realize why two of your albums are called Duality and Duality 2. Does this all have something to do with it? It definitely does. Um, I battle myself. I'm a street guy, but I also know the love of being part of my people, you know? So it's, and, and it's not a battle of like, I'm trying to choose good or evil. No, I, I choose good, but it's, I still have a, a understanding of the other side, you know? We're going to listen to a song now called Little Indian Boy, which is off your album, Duality. Tell us who it's for. I made that song for my son. I have three kids, two girls, one boy, and I know what it's like to to be on the res and, and be part of the crowd that's like, oh, they're not Indian enough because they don't live here. And I also know what it's like to be in the city and hear people from the res be like, they're not Indian enough. You know, me, I'm all right. My son, though, he, I don't want him to have a hard time. So I, I made the song for not just him, but it's for all, it's for everybody. Like, as long as you find your identity, you know? Lil Wendy boy, let me walk with you, talk to you. I know your city living, feeling lost. Cause our people get to hating when you tell them you ain't been home. But those reservations ain't home. Most of us detached from our origins. So it's more about getting in tune. Knowledge and power, we adapted to the city life. Holding on to our pride. But because we rock dickies and chucks, we ain't native enough. Kill that noise. It's about knowing oneself. Respecting the lands, protecting our women. Raising kings and queens, you dig it? You may feel the weight of the world. Cause in today's society, they forget about us. They rather steal our culture. And hope you never know it Write us out the books and keep on rolling So I tell us keep tradition alive But we gotta see and adapt to the times Finding the path is hard but we gotta try That was Lil Indian Boy by San Diego artist Indian K Off his album Duality You were passing on knowledge to your son But tell us a little bit about how you grew up That taught you these lessons My mother and my father were, you know They they were involved in... uh, street life my my father more so gangs by his own choosing me I, I bounced around a lot between family not really stable by the time I was 11 I'm in Phoenix Arizona and group homes and we're not talking like orphan Annie stuff we're talking like adolescence I guess coming out of juvenile prisons juvenile halls the misfits I guess and we had to make choices to survive and yeah, you, you grew up in, in a group home and you ended up in the criminal justice system and ended up locked up. But that experience, that prison experience, really turned your life around, didn't it? Tell us what happened in there. I like to tell people, you know, prison is going to it's gonna do one or two things for you. You're going to realize that you're okay with living the life you live or you're going to say, I don't want to live like this and before I went to prison, but I was still on the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met a beautiful woman, you know, beautiful woman. And I'm not talking looks, I'm talking her soul. Beautiful woman. And um, I actually violated my parole at the time she got pregnant. So I went back on a parole violation. She's pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to miss the birth of my kid. Dad right oh. there. 
that was a, that was a big moment. That was a big moment. I said, "You're done. You're not doing this no more." Because if I'm not raising my kids, then I'm just like my father. No disrespect to my father. I love my father, but I, I just repeat the cycle. You know what I'm saying? I just repeat the cycle. Did you meet any other people that you could relate to from your own culture, American Indians also, you know, who who sort of became brothers for you while you were in there? Yeah, I met a lot of good brothers. Like, all my brothers are good. Um, you know, we're allowed to sweat inside and, you know, we eat together. And I won't lie, I wouldn't have known Sweat Lodge. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known a lot of our structure if I didn't go to prison, like just as being, you know, American Indian, like I experienced more of my culture being locked up than on the outside, which I always looked at my culture as being proud because my father's always told me that, but it, experiencing it, I was like, yo, we're like, we're better than this. <laughs> like, what am yeah. I doing? Why, why is my first sweat lodge inside of a freaking penitentiary? Like, kind of paradoxical but hey that's what saved you in a way it so did what makes this thing from your culture what makes the sweat lodge such a powerful experience for people who don't know what that is so a sweat lodge it's like um if you go to church i mean whatever whatever place you go to worship you know uh allah god i i i, I say creator I, if we're all talking about the same thing so it's just our place of worship. You know, San Diego actually has more reservations than any other county in the United States. Do you think San Diegans know enough about, you know, the original peoples who lived for centuries in this area? What, what would you like them to understand more of? I don't think they do. I've ran into people that asked me, you know, where I was from and... When I told them my tribe, they were like, where's that? And I had to be like outside of Escondido and they still kind of didn't know. And that's all right, because out here I noticed our reses are pushed back into, you know, the East Valley, into the mountains. So they're kind of like hidden from the city. But mm -hmm. one thing I do want people to know is like, this is all Indian land right here. This is, it's good to know your surroundings. It's good to know the original people from here. And we're here, like that's that's it. Like I, I don't I don't really push the Indian part as crazy, but you know, just I just want people to know, man, like even after all this time, we're able to still have intact a culture, a belonging, a feeling, a a, a understanding of who we are. What do you think about all the talk of racial justice that's going on right now? I think that if if people don't see a problem um, with equality, then they're blind. Mm. If we can't respect one race, then all lives don't matter. I think that you know it's an injustice. There's a there's a divide. There's there's racism. Like there's racism. The same stuff that happens to white people on a lenient level, a black person would get killed. A colored person would get killed. That's just facts. It's proven. You can look it up. It's not, there's no, there's no racial equality. That's why we're fighting for racial equality. Indian K, have a fabulous day. It's great to talk with you. Really great. You too, ma'am. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I ain't trust they didn't think we'd make it this far. Used to the haters. Big bro, what goes up keeps going us. 
Money missions, hungry had to get it. Intuition told me I was different. Top shelf sipping craft beer, the homies laughing. Stuck up, nah, I just know my palates and my passions. Passing these dudes by, these dudes lie. They on fool's time, I switch lanes. Get into the paper, the mood's right. Moonlight show me I'm a star, but Noah James show me I would rather be a planet. Solid foundation, no shame in saying I love y'all. When nights was rough, it was just me and Big Bruh. Now nights get rough, we coastal. Blowing top flight, it ain't the same dog, but we the same dog. But we the same dog. I'm just gonna live my life. This is dreams being brought to reality. To reality. I'm just gonna live my life. My life. This is dreams being brought to reality. To reality. To reality. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.